This is Art Woods. And Marty Martin. We wanted to let you know that this episode is the last one in our first season. We're taking a few months off, and we'll be back for our second season starting in August. Over the summer, we'll be recording a few more interviews, but mostly we'll be planning for season two and changing things up to make a better podcast. We'll be improving the audio quality, telling better stories by hiring more writers to help with our scripts, and we'll add more content to our Patreon page. We need your help on two fronts. The first is advice and feedback. We would love to get your feedback. Tell us what you like best and least about the podcast. You can get to us through Patreon or directly at bigbiology at gmail.com. You can also give us reviews on iTunes. The second way you can help is just by spreading the word about us over social media or by donating. All of our improvements cost money, so help us make them happen. Sign up now on Patreon. That's a critical source of funding for us. Our address there is www.patreon.com slash bigbio. Here's the last episode in our first season. We'll see you again in August. Towards the end of the 19th century, a group of killer whales in southern Australia befriended the Davidsons, a whaling family that had hunted baleen whales, the group that includes humpback, right, and other whales. For more than a century, the killer whales and the whalers had an unspoken arrangement. If a baleen whale came close to shore, the killer whales would splash their tails to alert the humans and shepherd the baleen whale into a nearby bay. The Davidsons would then row out into the bay and harpoon the baleen whale. The humans and the killer whales would then share the spoils. The Davidsons left the baleen carcasses out for the killer whales so they could eat the lips and the tongue. Then the Davidsons would haul the baleen whale carcass back to shore and process it. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, the hunting partnership thrived until an event in 1923 introduced some bad blood. At the end of that whaling season, with the help of a killer whale named Old Tom, George Davidson and a family friend named John Logan harpooned a whale in the bay. Because a strong storm was coming in, George and John decided not to leave the carcass out for the killer whales, and they instead tried to bring it right back to shore. According to Scientific American, that led to a tug-of-war between the whalers and Old Tom, during which Tom reportedly lost some teeth. This degree of cooperation between humans and animals is rare, and it raises some big questions about animal cognition. What's going on in a killer whale's brain in a situation like this? The Davidsons reported a personal connection with the killer whales, but how did the whales perceive that connection? We talked about these issues with Janet Mann, a biologist at Georgetown University who primarily studies bottlenose dolphins, Working mostly in Shark Bay in Western Australia, Janet studies how those dolphins form social networks, use tools, and communicate with each other. So what is it like for this animal to experience the world? And for dolphins or whales, it's obviously very, very, very different. Uh, so for example, for a deep diving species, just imagine the constant changes in pressure that this animal is experiencing. And experience extremely different habitat and where you have to get back to the surface to breathe um, after an hour um, or unihemispheric sleep so they can't have dream sleep because you can't dream and be half awake at the same time then you would be it would, it would be like a sci-fi movie or something our primate bias makes it hard to get inside the heads of other species but we continue to try Janet, for instance, has spent years watching dolphins in Shark Bay. She sometimes spots dolphins that seem to be casually chatting as they rest in the ocean. But it's unclear what they're even talking about. Sometimes these chats seem to be conveying important information. Janet said there's evidence that dolphins may teach their children how to use tools. Other times it seems like dolphins might even be lying or deceiving each other. 
In 2017, Janet edited a book about cetacean intelligence called Deep Thinkers. In this episode, we talk with her about the cognitive abilities of dolphins and other whales and whether we can really understand how other species experience the world. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. All right, so thanks for joining us today, Janet. Um, exciting to talk about this book that you and a lot of colleagues worked on, uh, I guess, a year or two ago now, called Deep Thinkers, about uh, cetacean intelligence. And before we go too deep into the details of intelligence, maybe let's start at the, the big picture. Can you, can you tell us about what cetaceans are? So they're closely related to the ungulate species, and that's their nearest ancestor, the hippopotamus. But the uh, cetaceans are divided into two sort of suborders, the baleen whales. People are mostly familiar with humpback whales, but also the largest animal on earth, the blue whale. And then the toothed whales, which are everything from the sperm whale is the largest down to the small porpoises. Okay. Um, and about how many different species, where do they live? There, there are 90 cetacean species worldwide, although it's New ones are sort of being discovered depending on how you divide the species that we know of. So there's a debate now, for example, if there's more than one killer whale species, for example. Hmm. So the, I think the, the thing that for a lot of people sets whales apart, right? whales and dolphins, they, there's quite a few things. But um, in, in reading the book, something that struck me is how different the experience of the world is for these animals than us, that they're so much more you know, responsive and dependent on sound than they are sight. Um, and I, I never really thought about the difference between, uh, you know, sort of living in a, in a medium where it's hard to see very, very far and then having to be reliant on ears. But the way that, that it was framed in the book, this concept of Umwelt, was especially exciting. So do you want to say something about what Umwelt is and sort of if you can put us in the quote-unquote mindset of what it means to be a cetacean? So umwelt is a very old concept in ethology, and it's the idea that we should be trying to get inside the skin of another species rather than just interpret them through our own lens. So what is it like for this animal to experience the world? And for dolphins or whales, it's obviously very, very, very different. <laughs> uh, so for example, for a deep diving species, just imagine the constant changes in pressure that this animal is experiencing and moving um, as far as a mile beneath mm -hmm. the ocean floor and it, it experiencing extremely different habitat and where you have to get back to the surface to breathe um, after an hour. Um, or the fact that they don't have, uh, they have unihemispheric sleep. So they can't have dream sleep because you can't dream and be half awake at the same time. Then you would be, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be like a, <laughs> it, would, it would be like a sci-fi movie or something um, to be experiencing that. But um, so there's that. And then just the acoustic world where you can hear sounds hundreds of kilometers away and be trying to interpret them, especially for some of the deep ocean Animals like a fin whale can communicate over hundreds of uh, kilometers or miles. And uh, for 
bottlenose dolphins, for example, and many of the other delphinids, that you could be in a group of um, a thousand individuals uh, for some of the for some of the dolphin species, and have to communicate with the animals that you're trying to stay with, uh, and identify individuals, and you're constantly moving, and they're constantly moving. Everything's mm-hmm. in motion all mm-hmm. the time. <laughs> We're slow. Sometimes I feel like the dolphin's life is a incredibly sped up version where they are joining and leaving each other and making decisions uh, over an environment where everything is very, um, very loud. Actually, you can hear other animals. You can hear people think of the water as underwater as quiet, but it's noisy down there. There's snapping shrimp, there's fish, there's uh, other species. So it's, it's a, it can be a cacophony of sound uh, through which they have to interpret. So, so on this idea of, of Umwelt, um, I mean, do you, do you think scientists are successful at, at this, at sort of getting inside the skin of another animal like that and really imagining what they're, they're experiencing? Or, you know, is it the kind of thing where even though we want to do that, we're still filtering everything through our own, you know, primate worldview? So, so is it realistic to, to experience the umwelt of, of something else? I think that in the, for a human to understand the umwelt of another species that were best at it for domains which we understand the best, like their social relationships. We can see that they do care about their offspring and we can see the affection and closeness between their offspring and imagine that there are emotions that reinforce that and we empathize with that and the way people responded when that, there was a killer whale female who, whose uh, offspring died, this was a, a few months back, and she carried her calf for three weeks. And everybody mm-hmm. was just stricken with mm-hmm. grief over this. And I think that that's where we can understand what the animal is feeling. Yeah. And people say, <laughs> yeah. oh, you're anthropomorphizing. Uh, but that's the only tool we have, and we use it with each other. How do I know what you're thinking or someone else is thinking? I, I just wanted to ask a, a broader question about um, communication with dolphins in terms of, you know, what, what are the prospects going forward for sort of, you know, rich, richer communication with dolphins? So, so understanding what they're saying better and, and, you know, communicating back to them what we're saying in, in better ways. So what, what are the prospects there? Well, I think I'd rather know what they're saying to each other first because (laughs) evolution is, you know, they had big brains way before we did like 30 million years ago. I mean, ours got big. I mean, human brain got as big, like less than 2 million years ago. Um, So, They've had these big brains for a long time, and just because they're not building things down the ocean, like building cities and stuff, doesn't mean there isn't a, a lot going on. So Right, so they're not creating technological artifacts, but there may be a lot going on in their brains, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right, we just, this is a, so that's where I, that's the most interesting thing. I mean, yes, it would be nice to be able to ask them questions uh, and, and so on, but it's difficult because... These are animals who are, even though they have adjusted to captivity, it's not the best environment for them, obviously, being in a small tank when they usually have uh, 
potentially hundreds of square miles and hundreds mm -hmm. of associates in a very complex environment. So if you raise an animal in captivity and want to ask it questions, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I live in a cement tank and uh, I, I got a beach ball and a frisbee and a few other goodies here. Sort when am I going to get my fish? Ultimate sensory deprivation, right? Yeah. When yeah. am I going to get my fish? Like that? I mean, what else do they have going on? Um, yeah. And, you know, it's what's going on in their lives with each other. And you get back to the umwelt <laughs> question yeah. of yeah. what's important but, to but, them. But so are, are there sort of new ways of thinking about this problem, you know, about what, what are dolphins saying to one another that are leveraging sort of new, new directions in, you know, whatever, comp computational biology, new ideas in linguistics, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean... So the big challenge is, is partly a technological challenge. So if you want to know what animals are saying to each other, then you have to know who is saying something or who's making the call at any given time. Now, with dolphins, they have no, no moving mouth parts when they're speaking. It's coming out of the melon, through the melon, through the forehead. The sound is... Um, they're actually producing kind of nasalizations and it's vibrating through something that's evolved like our vocal cords, but they call it the monkey lips, but it's this organ. And then it transmits through the, the fatty melon into the water. So when they're making a sound, there's no visual cue, uh, even if you could actually see the animal at the time it's making the sound. And then you have to be able to see what's going on also to know like, the, the context um, so you'd have to know, you know, the age and the sex and the relationship and who's making the call and, every, and sound travels so fast in modern as well. So, uh, let me give you an example you know, that you, just one time I was, there were just these two old females that kind of have known each other that for decades, you know, and they often hang out together and, I had a hydrophone in the water. I was just listening because I'm not a, a acoustician, but I, I just happened to be listening because they were just resting. And I didn't think anything was going on. They're just resting close to each other. And then one, uh, well, what I think was one, I hear, and the other one goes, next one goes, and then, and then the other, it's like, you know, like that, back and forth, like, it seemed like back, it sounded like a conversation. Uh -huh. I don't even know if that was just like the same animal talking or calling or whatever it was doing. Um, but it sounded just like a conversation. Here, I was just watching <laughs> them thinking they're both just resting. Right. And you're like, what yeah. the hell are they talking about? Wouldn't it be great to know? Wouldn't it be great to know? That's what I want to know. What were those two old old females talking Talk, about? Talking about on the porch, huh? Yeah, exactly. So we have put together. We have had some partnerships. We as a as a whole species. I don't think art. How much interaction you've had with dolphins and whales? It's not much for me. So I, I mean the broad we. Yeah, um, we do have some pretty amazing examples of of intimate coordinated actions like uh, i don't remember where it is in brazil but the fishermen that sort of work with the dolphins to to use nets and my favorite with a killer whales i think this is back in the eight well must have been in the 1800s or so where killer whales were notifying whalers that the humpbacks were coming through and then even herding humpbacks into the pathway 
of uh, the whaler. So um, I imagine we probably don't want to encourage any type of behavior like that among killer whales so much anymore. But um, are those are there other systems or are people working in those systems to sort of get a grasp on dolphin intelligence as it relates to humans or cetacean intelligence as it relates to humans? Yeah, well, when it comes to um, catching fish or catching whales, when it comes to food, all animals understand that. Um, and <laughs> Great place to start. Uh, yeah, it's a good place. And, you know, you think about um, wolf to dog, you know, human co-evolution uh, is probably, most people think it's probably about food um, mm -hmm. and that there was clear development of communication around that relationship and it is really interesting because i mean obviously we're not we're while we're in the same environment as uh wolves and dogs we're in with fishermen and um whalers it's not the same environment they're on a mm -hmm. boat and the fact that um well dolphins and whales have been known to like regularly learn you know the sounds of different boats they know the sound of my boat they know oh, okay you know we know this boat. Here comes not gonna... the researcher. Yeah, I mean they know they're very relaxed around our boats, and I've been on other boats, uh, and I don't think it's just even driven other boats, and I could see it's really different. So they clearly huh. associate. Um, yeah, okay, we know we can relax around this one, so they can learn very quickly an association between the sound of the boat, or perhaps even the look of a vessel, because they mm -hmm. didn't have motorboats back in the whaling days. But a lot of um, traditional. A uh, human um, dolphin or human whale interactions, they would use uh, sound communicating like uh, their aboriginals in uh, aboriginals in Australia have like these, they call them dolphin sticks where they would click them together uh, to, um, and that would attract dolphins. Um, and someone gave me a pair of these sticks. And, and so we we used them and these dolphins like came over to check it out. I mean, they were huh. just interested. And in you're it. whacking them together underwater or? Yeah. Uh -huh. And and do you have to do it in some kind of pattern to, to send out the signal no, or just, is it, any, it anything will work? Clicking them together. So, you know, you could see how quickly they're very curious animals and they can learn an association like very quickly. Um, and I've also seen them you know, come around uh, uh, fishing nets and things like that because uh, they know, okay, there's a fish here. Look, they're trapping all of these fish and they take advantage. They try to pick off the fish on the outside of the net. Mm -hmm. So you could see that they could learn those associations very, very quickly. Um, they learn, they can learn to trust humans if, when they behave themselves, so, or provide a, <laughs> a, a provide them with, um, the tongues of humpback whales, which is what they, or yeah. right whales, which is what they like to eat, is the tongue. So mm. they're pretty happy with that. <laughs> so I bet we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about dolphins, um, and that and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know you've worked on them for a while. Um, but let's try to let's start broad before we, we narrow into a lot of the, the particular research that's covered. Who are the who are the true cetacean smarties? I mean, among all species or groups of species, which ones really take the cake? Well, the smartest 
in terms of at least what we know about behavior and brain size are the dolphin species or the delphinids, mm -hmm. of which there's about 22 species, but the biggest brains are in bottlenose dolphin, white-sided dolphin, which we know very little about, and Cetalia, which is a small dolphin, but um, also with a very big brain. Killer whales have big brains too, but for controlling for body size, the smaller dolphins take the cake. And, and how how important do you think brain size is per se versus sort of other aspects of the the way the brain's structured? I mean, is is brain size a good indicator? Well, brain size brain size is a, probably a very good indicator within any taxonomic group. And the cetacean brains are structured quite a bit differently from the primate brain. I mean, it's been a evolving separately from anything remote, I mean, before the primate lineage evolved, so uh, 90 million years ago. So it's, it's evolved from a completely separate, um, you know, it's a separate lineage. So it looks very different. Uh, it's structured very differently. It doesn't have, uh, it's lost one of the layers, for example, and we still don't understand why. Um, it, but it's also converged on certain features uh, so that some of the, uh, the structures of those brains do seem to parallel, like that there's been convergence in evolving neur neuronal structures that fulfill the kinds of functions that we associate with high intelligence. Mm -hmm. And one of those that was surprising to read was the sort of relatively small size of the hippocampus compared to primates. Um, I mean, now, you know, you recount the story now of how, how long it's been, that their brains have been evolving independently. But the role of the hippocampus in, so in mammals and, and in vertebrates generally is, is pretty important for things that I would imagine are very important to cetaceans. Do we have any sense of what part of the brain serves the sort of spatial memory and other roles of the hippocampus? Yeah, so the, the, one of the thoughts is that there are other parts of the brain have taken on cer certainly uh, uh, the functions of memory that the hippocampus seems important um, important for us. So the hippocampus is very important for spatial memory. And one of the thoughts is that dolphins, even though they're excellent at navigation, probably know their environments very well, their, their prey are always moving, they're always moving. Um, they have an area that, it depends on the species, but they have areas that they're very familiar with. Uh, so they might not use the same kind of spatial memory that we use to learn about our environment. They could be using other navigational tools. So that may be why the hippocampus has sort of retreated. We, we can rely on land for things to be there. We know, we have to know where the fruiting trees are if you're a primate. And, things like that. So they've developed different mechanisms for navigating their world and may not need a big hippocampus like we do. Okay. So, so of the, of the baleen whales, uh, which of those are known to have the highest intelligence? Uh, <laughs> that was going to be my question too. I didn't want to leave out the poor baleen yeah, whales. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about the baleen whales? So in baleen whales, really the only one that has been studied in great detail is the humpback whale. And we don't know a lot about intelligence in baleen whales. We know that they use song, whereas the tooth whales have an elaborate 
communication system, whales kind of are more bird-like in some senses. They migrate, they use very large parts of the ocean. They don't have the same complexity in social bonds that the toothed whales do. So we don't, we can't really say that much about the baleen whales other than what we know about the humpback whales, really. One of the most interesting whales, I think, is the bowhead whale because they're thought to live as long as 200 years. Hmm. So they are the longest living mammal and they don't start reproduction until age 20. And they have some really interesting... I mean, who knows what's going on up there in the Arctic? Uh, And we may not find out if if, uh, climate change really affects the Arctic seas so much that you know that they're they're going to be they're going to be at risk when there's extensive shipping in that area and so on uh, because mm-hmm. they rely on navigating under ice and um, knowing where breathing holes are but very little is known about them in fact but they're mm-hmm. that's the one I'm most fascinated what do they do for 200 years <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's really really neat uh, so let's talk a little bit about the, the studies that have been done, maybe not on the bow whales because of the difficulties of, of working on them. How do we know about intelligence? I know there's been lots of long-term studies on dolphins, but what what are the sort of the, the ones that really stand out to you and, and you know give, give most people the impression that they're the, the smarties of the group? Well, part of the reason people think that dolphins are the smarties in the group is because we've been able to study them. The bottlenose dolphin lives in coastal environments nearly worldwide. I mean, they're all over the world, uh, mm-hmm. two species of bottlenose. And they've adjusted to captivity uh, reasonably well. The people have run experiments, everything from John Lilly uh, on on up on their communication systems, their ability to learn a human form of language, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, tested their memory so they can remember individuals for, or at least the signature whistles of individuals they haven't seen for 20 years um, Mm -hmm. or interacted with for 20 years. They uh, can discriminate very well between objects and match uh, match an object they see in air but can't echolocate on and then be blindfolded and match it to the uh, the sonar image. So they can cross have what's called cross-modal perception. Yeah, that was one of the studies that, that really blew me away because when you put that together with the, the umwelt that we started with, that they really don't use vision so much, they still have the capacity to put those two things together. That's uh, that's it's pretty remarkable. Well, they have very good vision, uh, and they can they just don't have color vision, and they don't mm-hmm. necessarily need it so much underwater. Uh, and so I think, you know, when they can use their vision, I mean, they're quiet a lot of the time. They're not like constantly echolocating. Mostly, they're looking, um, mm. and periodically maybe putting out a few sonar pulses. Here and there, mm-hmm. you know, like when they're resting or something, you might hear a few pulses. They're just checking out what's what's there. But um, so they do use their vision quite a bit. But the fact that, that they can also communicate to somebody else, like that one 
dolphin can see an object in air and then the other dolphin dolphin in a neighboring tank can only has a choice of objects and has to pick out the same one the other one saw and they seem to be able to communicate via echolocation i guess like what the uh, the correct object is so that the animal the other animal can answer the question correctly and they both Mm -hmm. get the fish um so that suggests that they could put a sound picture perhaps in another one's head which is interesting from the perspective of um you know if i can if I could click, if I could send you sonar clicks to actually put the image in your head as opposed to just telling you about it and hoping that you're getting the same image. That's mm-hmm. a, I, mm-hmm. yeah, that's I mean, amazing. that's an idea of like what they possibly should be able to do or how else would they do that? circle back to this this thing that you said in passing about signature clicks and whistles uh, that individuals have and sort of long-term memories so I think what you're saying is that they have names for one another um, so is that I mean do dolphins name each other and and how do we how do we know that they do that well it seems that dolphins don't name each other but they come up with their own name and ah. they use each they, they, use they the broadcast name their name yeah so I think what's interesting is uh you know, dolphins are born, they can whistle, you know, babies whistle, they have these kind of, you know, little upsweep whistles that are sort of most common. And during the first year of life, they develop a distinctive whistle, uh, at least in bottlenose dolphins and, and some other species, that is different from the other whistles. Uh, of other individuals and so that becomes a signature whistle and we know that those are stable um, for over many many years for life wherever it's been tested so essentially a baby has to come up with its own name and keep that name and it's thought that one of the ways they might do this is they might they hear their mother's whistle and they hear the whistles of others in their network in that first year and so in a sense, they have to create, we think of dolphins as pretty creative, actually, they have to create a whistle that's different from all the other whistles. They have to be in the empty part of that namespace, huh? (laughs) Which is pretty cool. And, you know, on a sonogram, you know, these whistles look different. Humans can hear the differences between them. But if you listen to our, our language, or if I said my name, Janet, and, you know, and you said your name, Marty, or on a sonogram, it would look really flat. Like <laughs> they look like mm-hmm. the same thing. I mean, these whistles look beautiful on these sonograms. They're going up and down, and um, it's thought that this is how they can maintain sounding the same, regardless of the water pressure you're in. That the contour mm. maintains its integrity at different water depths, so the animals can uh, use that individual recognition. You know, if you're down. 50 meters or if you're right at the surface oh so wait so this is maybe something i don't understand so if a dolphin dives down deep and says its name do the frequencies shift because of the depth 
Well, the contour stays the same. So the water pressure, though, would change the quality of the sound. Think of it this way. Uh-huh. Like, I, you can pr- identify me, and my, if my mother was listening to this, she knows my voice. We can use voice recognition um, and also the sort of biophysical properties of sound that we can kind of use to that say, oh, yeah, that's Janet. If your mother calls you and she just says hello, you know immediately who you it is. You know immediately, yeah. <laughs> but if your mother said hello to you underwater, you probably could not recognize her. Yeah, or she huffs some helium before she calls. <laughs> or something. There's <laughs> <laughs> something that would have to really change the the voice property. So underwater, you can't use vocal recognition the way land animals can use vocal recognition so I'm imag- imagining like a, a big group of dolphins together, you know, several hundred bottlenose, right? That happens occasionally. Are, and they're all swimming around. Are they all saying their names like all the time? It must be just this cacophony of names or do they um, use them well, more strategically Well, when they're together, they're that? not using their names because they kind of know who's there. Okay. Usually, I mean, what's known so far about signature whistles is that they use them to maintain, like if somebody's separate from the group or is going to join the group or if you want to call someone over then uh-huh. you you would use the name. And they can mimic each other's. They uh-huh. mimic, they can call back and forth, but they can also mimic, like if it's an emergency, um, a mother might, uh, she might emit her whistle, but she might also just emit the calf's whistle, um, mm. in a sense, calling it. So they they tend to use their signature whistles when they need to. Like it's not like I'm, if I'm sitting in a room with you, I don't keep, saying I'm hey, Janet, I'm Janet, I'm Janet. Hey, I'm Janet. I'm Janet. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, yeah, so, but there are other whistles that they use. We don't know their sort of social whistles. Like when they're socializing, there's lots and lots of sound. The other aspect about dolphin communication that we know is it's not like, they're not chorusing the way, you know, frogs or crickets or other animals chorus. They alternate. Uh, so it's like, conversation or it's more like that this is about social interactions not about broad advertisement Uh um, sounds of this is where you know the attractive females are this is where the attractive males are and so on yeah yeah One of the things you talk about in the book and that, that was really intriguing to me is this idea of um, culture, of cetacean cultures. And, you know, I think I think as humans, we, we would have an easy time defining what culture means to us. But, you know, for, for non-human species, what, what are cultures and how do, we, how do we know about those cultures? Culture is a big debate amongst psychologists, biologists, uh, anthropologists, and everyone defines it differently. And there was a book that was edited by Jeff Galef and Kevin Leyland where they asked a diversity of scientists to define culture. And the one common theme is that culture is propagated through social learning, so learning from others and that it also distinguishes between groups. And so that there's members of one group that do something one way and another group does another way. Or as Bill McGrew had put it, it's the way we do things is probably one of the best lines for summing up what culture is. 
Uh, so the debate about this amongst cetaceans is, you know, how do you uh, define it? We don't have objects to differentiate between this group and that group. And so in sperm whales and killer whales, the, the dialects are one way. There's distinct dialects or vocal communication amongst clans of sperm whales or pods of uh, killer whales on how they communicate with each other. The other is uh, the killer whale hunting tactics, which are also sort of vertically transmitted or through the matriline. And many of these actually seem vertically transmitted in cetaceans, that they're passed on from mother or the mother's group to mm -hmm. the offspring and propagated mm -hmm. that way. In uh, the case that I know the best is the sponge tool use in shark bay bottlenose dolphins, and I've been studying that for over 30 years. And that's also vertically transmitted, but what's different about it is that some members of the group use sponges as foraging tools, and other members of the community that associate with the spongers, as we call them, do not use uh, sponge tools. So they're aware of it, um, but and they see others carrying these sponges, uh, but they don't try the behavior. Mm-hmm. The, the, maybe uh, just amplify that idea of sponge tool use. So, so how are they using sponges and tools? What are they doing with them? It's, it's fascinating what they're doing with the sponges. They get these uh, basket sponges, which take a few years to grow. They're about uh, the smallest or the size of a fist, uh, but they can be um, a bit <laughs> close to the size of a, well, as big as a football or a little bit bigger than that. But they're shaped like a basket, and they wear them over the beak or the rostrum, and they use them to uh, probe the substrate in these deep channels. And by deep, I mean, you know, 10 to 12 meters. And uh, the substrate is rough down there. We've tried sponging ourselves to find out what they're doing. And basically, they're scaring up fish, these small fish, primarily barred sand perch, uh, which is... Um, a fish that just sits on the bottom and very, very hard to see. But what's significant about the behavior is uh, they'll use these sponges to scare up these fish that are not just well camouflaged, so you can't see them. And the sponge is very good at unearthing these, uh, these fish. Mm -hmm. But normally dolphins can use echolocation uh, to find fish like this. Their echolocation works right through the sand. Uh, so Normally, they could use uh, echolocation to find fish, but they rely on fish with swim bladders. Um, but not all fish have swim bladders, and especially bottom-dwelling fish. The swim bladder is a gaseous balloon inside the so, fish. So there. they need the contrast between the tissue and the gas bladder to get the reflection of the sound. Is that it? Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. So they can use that because the flesh of the fish is, is similar to the density of the water, but the balloon uh -huh. is not over the So they're basically seeing the, seeing the balloon, yeah. Yeah, and they could probably tell different species by the swim bladders because they are distinct in each species right. of fish. So they can't use the swim bladder because the fish that they're after don't have swim bladders. So they're inaudible and invisible, and they use the basket sponge to find the fish that others cannot 
see or hear in a sense. So uh-huh. they're exploiting a niche that others cannot. And, and so they're basically using it as like a, a kind of beak glove to keep from tearing up their, their beaks while they're rooting around for these fish. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Beak glove. Yeah. <laughs> like that. <laughs> so Janet, can you, can you sort of explicitly tie together tool use and culture? And I'm um, asking from what I remember in the book and, and sort of what you alluded to a second ago uh, about how these behaviors are transmitted. So it's intriguing to me, and I wonder if this is the reason that some are reluctant to call this culture. It's intriguing to me that some dolphins will see this and not do it. Um, and is there any sort of qualifier in the human culture world that if something works, if something is amazing, then everybody does it and it sort of takes off really, really quickly? Is, is that anything to do with the skepticism or at least how do you how do you relate cultural sort of culture and tool use in the in the dolphins? The speed at which uh, others adopt a cultural behavior uh, can depend on a lot of different factors. So um, things that move horizontally, you know, like music through peer groups, you know, something will become a hit song and, or just move very, very quickly. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. some uh, uh, cultural behaviors um, or characteristics that can move fast and horizontal transmission tends to move faster. Or like changes mm-hmm. in humpback whale song uh, that's been argued as cultural can move uh, pretty quickly through populations. Um, vertical transmission tends to be slower, and part of the reason for that is because with the behavior takes a very long time to learn, and so the offspring of spongers have watched their mothers do this for thousands of hours before they even attempt, as far as we know from watching the calves, uh, before mm-hmm. they even attempt to get a sponge and try it themselves. Um, so that's one aspect of it and that's true for other kind of vertically transmitted behaviors um, that they can take years of uh, um, schooling uh, you know mm-hmm. sort of re- religious kind of affili- like us well in religious affiliations that's often the mm. case for example that's many sort of years of an education to um, and that's a, that it that's one that's vertically transmitted in humans mm. right um, but mm-hmm. the thing that's different about the sponging because um some of the animals in the population do it and others don't, uh, it's that they actually have a social preferences. Spongers prefer to hang out with other spongers. They do hang out with non-spongers, but the social preference is, that, is kind of uh, that they group. The second part of the definition with, of culture is that, they, um, that it distinguishes between groups. So if they have preferential mm-hmm. affiliations, then it is, and it's sort of... Um, uh, but they're grouping because of the cultural behavior. They're not engaging in the cultural behavior because they're part of the group. And mm, that's mm, where it's different than other, uh, than I, I think virtually all other animal cultures. Okay. Mm, okay. Interesting. Oh, so um, another one of the things that's intriguing and, and the way that you phrased it, I just wanted to clarify the moms are not actively teaching the offspring, right? It was just an observation or is there any evidence that the moms are doing the teaching? Yeah, teaching is another one that everybody argues about in the amongst <laughs> the psychologists and biologists in particular. Uh, and so the view of the sort of classic definition of teaching is that the teacher modifies their behavior in order to benefit a naive observer. So you have to the teacher has to have some understanding of the skill of the observer, and it's been pretty well demonstrated in the meerkats, for example, that um, they help them. <clears throat> 
um, they help the young uh, uh, catch scorpions and eat scorpions by modifying the scorpion according to the sort of age of the pup and, and their associated skill level. Um, with the dolphins and teaching, um, there is some evidence of modifying the behavior. Mostly it's observational. So the calf is just swimming along and watching its mother. But we also have seen and demonstrated <clears throat> that mothers of daughters, and it's primarily daughters who adopt the sponging technique, mothers of daughters modify their diving behavior more to benefit daughters for observing the behavior. And that is less the case with sons. So with sons, they seem to um, basically not change their behavior as much. And sons are less li likely to adopt sponging as well. So that could arguably be a form of teaching because if you slow the behavior down or do anything mm -hmm. to change it, that, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that would uh, benefit a naive observer. That would qualify as teaching. So, so is there any obvious reason why sons are not learning this? Are they interested in other things or incapable? Or Yeah, some, some uh, people have joked with me that males just have an aversion to sponges, but um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say males have an aversion to learning. <laughs> that could be too. Yeah, but that's where the, I thought you were going too. The, um, a lot of uh, people joke about it, but it's sort of funny because the um, the classic you know stereotype or uh, sex stereotype is like of man the tool user, and I'm like, well, if you look in the um, animal kingdom, it's females who are much more obsessed with food, and and most of the tools in the animal kingdom are about extractive foraging or getting, mm -hmm. uh, using a tool to extract things from a difficult environment, whether it's uh, the female bias in um, termite fishing, that they're the ones that use tools um, a bit more in some of the chimpanzee sites. But it's because females <clears throat> are much more biased uh, towards foraging behaviors because it's more strongly linked to reproduction. and. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, getting enough resources. And for the males in bottlenose dolphins in Shark Bay, they form multi-level alliances. Um, and so it's all about social politics for them. And they spend a lot of time recruiting... Full-time Game of Thrones for the males? Uh, a bit a, a bit more. I mean, I think they're... they're um, I mean, they are much more aggressive than the females... Uh, but forming alliances uh, and developing those alliances it takes them many years. They uh, they don't really have a stable alliance until their late teens, and that's also when they start getting successful matings. But they're basically mm -hmm. spending uh, 15 years <laughs> trying to work out who their partner is going to be, and many of these are stable. Some of them have been stable for life, mm -hmm. um, they do sometimes switch on, switch a little bit. So some of the young males don't have alliance partners, but they're adults and they're fertile. Um, and the uh, um, oldest males have sometimes lost their alliance partners, so they might be on their own. But yeah, so it's a sponging probably interferes with that lifestyle because you'd be restricted to a small area where the sponges grow, where these prey are and these channels. The males have to move around a lot to get access to females. I see. I wanted to ask a, a related question about uh, whether 
you guys have observed any fitness consequences of, of tool use. So do the females that use sponges, are they longer lived and better fed? And do they, you know, do they have more babies than those that don't? We've looked at the fitness question and haven't found a difference between spongers and non-spongers. They do spend a lot of time foraging uh, and more time foraging than non-spongers. Uh, it might be different for the males. Uh, so there are some male spongers. Half the sons of spongers be half the sons of spongers become spongers, and I do suspect that they have lower paternity uh, or lower mating success because, at least at present, none of the known fathers in our sample are spongers. Out of a, hmm. over a, a hundred and twenty. So Janet, a, um, a quick one. I'm going to say a quick question because it's a three-word question for me, but if your answer is long, I'll understand. Um, do dolphins lie? They can deceive. I think they're capable of tactical deception. What's well, called, it's called <laughs> okay. tactical you, you deception. Sounds like a political that. way of saying, yes, they lie. <laughs> yes, that's spoken like a yeah, politician for sure. But, but what, So what's an example? Well, my favorite example is... Uh, is uh, there was a female, uh, her name's Puck, and she was being um, consorted by three males and in those alliances. And uh, Puck has a lot of female friends, and she uh, was speeding up. We were following Puck, and there was one of the males, uh, his name was High because he had a very tall fin, and High was what's called the guard he was sort of responsible for staying near puck while the other males could hunt and come back so they the males take turns kind of monitoring the female make sure she doesn't escape but i think puck was getting a little fed up with them she'd been with them for a while and she um sped up towards this female group and this uh group of females kind of turned when uh puck joined with the males and the females started petting and rubbing all over the males, um, all three of the males, just petting and rubbing. It's very friendly. And n normally females don't initiate that and act that friendly. And the males were just loving it, rolling around and uh, <laughs> having a good old time, uh, all three of them. In the meantime, two other females who are very close to Puck sort of flanked her on either side so that not, the males couldn't see or even echolocate on you know, where she was in particular, they flanked her on both sides and then they escorted her slowly and very casually, like nothing going on here, away <laughs> from the group. And they got about 50 meters out from the group and all three of them stopped. And then Puck, who was in the middle, just bam, like bolted full speed, <laughs> just took off. And the males were still petting and rubbing with the other females in the group. And then suddenly, like, all three of them froze, like, mid-pet, you know, with the females. Like, they just stopped. And they panicked. They started, like, swimming around in all different directions. And, uh, like, we lost Puck. We lost Puck. You know, you could just sort of, then where is she? And then um, they sped off in all these directions. And um, I saw where kind of Puck went because we were at the surface. And we could see her speed off. And um, the males, um, the females kind of went la-di-da, and they just kind of moved off. And the females who helped her just came back to the group very slowly and casually. So all the females take off. 
And the two other males in the alliance um, came back and they beat up, they turned on high and they beat them up. And it was as if to say, you were responsible. You were supposed to be the guard, (laughs) you know, who came in here and you got distracted. Um, So it, it looked like a, you know, a completely planned out event as far as the females. But to me, that looks like tactical deception. It's hard to interpret that whole sequence of events without thinking that uh, the females knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, so so one of the other things that you cover in the book some and that we hear a lot about is um, changes to the world's oceans and the potential effects on, on marine life. So in, in terms of risks to cetaceans, you know, if you had to name your sort of top two or three risks, what would they be? Well, climate change is the big one because uh, with warming seas, it can cause... Um, cascades of collapse of the small organisms that affect, you know, what the fish are feeding on and fish will affect what um, the marine mammals are feeding on. So all sea life is impacted by climate change, but it goes up the food chain pretty quickly. And -hmm. these are animals that are considered important. Um, Some have called them eco-engineers, you know, and that they are modifying the ocean environments in important ways and are essential that they're um, key species in in the oceans. And they provide, they in turn provide lots of food for other animals when they die. Um, you know, there's some animals that just live on dead whale carcasses. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything is affected by that. So climate change is the biggest one because it's so pervasive and uh, particularly warming and the changes in the Arctic regions in particular since marine mammals that's such an important habitat and such an important um, uh, that's such an important source of marine life for all of the seas um, things Mm -hmm. that originate in those in the Arctic regions Um, the other big ones are things like sound pollution that uh, especially in the North Atlantic Uh, where there's a tremendous amount of shipping traffic, and that's going to be a big issue in the Arctic as the uh, uh, warming occurs and ice is less prevalent. There'll be new new shipping lanes there that are opening up. Yeah, Yeah, new shipping lanes. Um, The sound really affects communication for the, especially the large whales that communicate sometimes hundreds of kilometers. Um, That's, you know, finding mates and... um, listening to what's going on is really are, are the sounds sometimes so loud that they're they're damaging the you know the whales and dolphins or is it more uh, about interference yeah it could be damaging to their hearing i mean that's actually been shown that it does i mean there's some adjustment they can make you know just like if you if you go to a rock concert you know but mm-hmm. if you keep going to rock con- if you're living at a rock concert <laughs> You notice they're all wearing earplugs. I mean, no one can give the uh, dolphins and whales the earplugs yeah. to block out. I lost enough hearing just going to a few really loud ones in my 20s. Yeah, there you uh. go. So <laughs> uh, 
they 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 can um adjust a little bit but not enough to compensate there was an amazing um study done um also the to show the stress of this so the north atlantic is is one of the biggest you know if you look at the maps of shipping traffic it's just unbelievable um and this study looked at um you know they had samples of uh cortisol levels from right whales who are highly endangered in the north atlantic um and cortisol is a stress hormone um and you can measure it and you can measure it from their blow or from um you know their blubber there's different ways of measuring it or in their feces or in their poop basically and they had i think they measured it, they measured it in their poop the uh right whale poop anyway after september 11th um a long time ago maybe some of your listeners may not even remember september 11th um when shipping traffic was actually suspended for a while um and so the seas got quiet in the north atlantic and uh scientists went out and measured uh right whale um cortisol levels again and they dropped amazingly like they just precipitously wow. dropped and it was like imagine you're living next to a construction zone your whole life and then all of a sudden the project's done or whatever mm -hmm. right like what a relief right and it's quiet I mean, I, st I remember this because I live in D.C. and the planes, we, I live in a, the, uh, a flight path and we just have plane noise constantly. And mm. I remember it being quiet and being able to hear the birds and um, everything yeah. else all the time and how peaceful that was. Um, right. A real irony, but uh, that gives you an example of what they're yeah. living under. So, so is there any chance, do you think, of getting shipping companies to take active measures to cut down on the amount of noise their ships are putting out? Or is it just is too, too, too much economics going on? Well, yeah. I mean, shipping is just way too economically important. Um, and there's been an effort to get ships to slow down, to minimize strikes, because that's a big um that has a, a big impact on particularly the right whales uh, that get hit a lot. Hmm. Um, they don't seem to be able to either get out of the way or anticipate the ships coming and they're going at tremendous speeds. So getting them to slow down has been a big thing um, and hard to do. Getting them to um, avoid areas is just too cost is just too costly um important whaling areas although people are trying to do that and then the if anyone can come up with a a quiet engine um i'm sure right quiet but powerful engine uh, and fish are yeah. impacted by this too I and mean, fish can hear quite well and water in water sound travels really really well so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um anyone who could come up with a way for them to glide <laughs> silently mm -hmm. or i don't think sailing is going to be practical <laughs> not not going back to that anytime too soon uh, well uh, let me ask just one other conservation question so we hear a lot now about uh plastic accumulation in in the oceans and and you hear occasionally about whales washing up with lots of plastic in their in their guts how, how big of a threat altogether to cetaceans is that? 
yeah, plastic was going to be my third. So, uh, you know, mm. sound, warming, sound, and then plastic in addition to, um, it, because it just doesn't degrade. And uh-huh. all those tiny micro microbeads that also build up in addition to the, all the big stuff. Um, it just, and the thing about plastic is it, it kills again and again because what happens mm-hmm. is uh, animals that get even entangled in fishing line and they could, you know, die. Um, and then they decompose and the plastic is still fine and it rises and kills again. Mm. So plastic's a serial killer. It's, it's really deadly. last question is uh, one that we end all of the episodes um, and I'll leave it totally open-ended for you what's your your next big question or big study that you plan to do with the shark bay dolphins or cetaceans generally well uh, we have I guess there's two big ones one is we're trying to understand the lifetime and generational impact that the mother has on on her offspring so what's called sort of the maternal effect and because it seems like it's a big deal and at least in the in the dolphin species I study like the mother sets the stage for everything um the other that I'm I'm really interested in is uh, is how they know what the full sort of their network is uh these are highly social animals but the entire community is never together they're like humans they join and leave they have this very dynamic vision fusion society um so just like how do humans know who's friend or foe or who's plotting against them and um you know who's what are all the different relationships between individuals who are out of view or what can be said off camera you know you can't see everything that's going on in your community at the same time and how do we know um what how much information do we need to know or how much how many encounters with how many individuals uh get provides us with enough information and i i guess that's um kind of a social intelligence or social cognition question dolphins and whales live in environments that are totally foreign to us They're immersed in water all the time, so they sense their worlds in totally different ways. That means that their umwelt is nothing like ours. After spending more than 25 years studying dolphins, Janet is more equipped than most to imagine the world from a dolphin's perspective. To get inside the heads of cetaceans, she has spent decades studying the same dolphins using a variety of tools to keep track of where they are, what they're saying to each other, and generally what they're doing. The picture is far from perfect, but all of those data give us a window into their minds. It would be fascinating to know what dolphins are saying to each other, or even communicate with them directly. And working with such intelligent species might one day help us recognize extraterrestrial intelligence. Here on Earth, we've already started cooperating with whales and dolphins. In April, a beluga whale wearing a Russian harness approached a Norwegian fishing boat. Some people suspect the whale was gathering intelligence for the Russian Navy. The U.S. Navy, too, has trained dolphins to locate enemy mines. We might also be able to exploit cetacean talents for conservation. Imagine if we could recruit whales to help study ocean ecosystems or fix infrastructure deep underwater. 
If we learn to communicate with whales and dolphins, maybe they could tell us about problems we don't observe because of our primate biases. If you want to get involved in Janet's dolphin research, you can start by helping her to name them. To learn more about this opportunity, go to our website, www.bigbiology.org, or listen to the May 24th episode of NPR's Morning Edition. Thanks for listening to the first season of Big Biology. This is our last episode until August. Please let us know what you thought about this first season. You can leave us a review on iTunes or send us an email telling us what you think. We'll be planning for the future during June and July, but we would still really appreciate your financial support. Become a patron of the show by visiting www.patreon.com bigbio. While we're gone, we would love it if you could tell your friends to listen to our podcast. When they're not looking, sneak a friend's phone and subscribe them to the show. They'll thank you for it, we promise. Thanks to Matt Boyce for editing and production help. Steve Lane manages Big Biology's website. Chloe Ramsey and Haley Hansen run our social media feeds. And finally, thanks to the University of South Florida's College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Pottyton Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Ann Allen recorded a whale song. France Jensen recorded foraging buzzes. And Layla Sai Ying recorded the rest of the dolphin noises.